Hello folks, I'm Joe Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life. Our program is supported by your gifts, but it's brought to you out of the heart of two ministries. One is Church Partnership Evangelism, where I've been the executive director for over 30 years. We're a disciple-making ministry among the nations. To learn more, go to traincpe.org. The other ministry is the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, where I'm the Bible teacher. And this is the word we feed on. Today, we're looking at the last three declarations of our Lord Jesus from the cross. They come at the end of his sufferings and minutes before he dies. They are an answer to the mockers who surrounded him in his death. Those mockers had challenged the Lord Jesus to prove God's love for him by coming down from the cross. He didn't do that. He proved God's love for them by staying on it. These last statements of Jesus on the cross, I thirst, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says these last words at the end of six hours. The three last hours, darkness has been over the land, and now that darkness is dispelling, and the light again is beginning to shine, and he says them before all of those who have mocked him throughout his crucifixion, and their mocking goes on to the very end of his suffering. Just prior to this, at the end of these three hours of darkness, and the end of this six hours in which he hung upon the cross, Christ has cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those who are surrounding the cross take this moment again to offer up their mocking against him. They say, oh, he's calling for Elijah, even though it's clear, it's clear that that is not what he was saying. They add that claim to their mocking and their jesting beneath the cross. These last three declarations that the Lord Jesus makes are, in a sense, an answer to their accusations. God has not cast him off. God has not ignored him. He is who he declared himself to be. He is their Messiah, and he is responding to them, particularly and uniquely and thoughtfully in these last three statements. If you look at these three statements, it would seem to some extent, as we're saying here, that they were calculated, that they were less spontaneous than the other statements that we understand the Lord Jesus spoke from the cross. As they're nailing him to the cross, the nails are being driven through him. He, out from his pain, spontaneously cries out the heart of compassion, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he's hanging upon the cross, the thief who is beside him comes to faith in him and confesses his own sin and calls upon the Lord Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. The Lord Jesus responds to this evidence of repentance and faith and belief in him, by saying, assuredly, I say to you this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. Just as he is descending into the great suffering that he will experience, he gazes down at his mother and his apostle John, who is standing next to her, and he pauses as he's entering to this time of suffering to arrange some family business to provide for her. And he says, woman, behold thy son, pointing to John or directing her to John. And to John, he says, John, behold thy mother. We're told from that time on that Mary went and lived in the home of John and was cared for by John. Now he goes through the agonies and the experience of the cross and the darkness of the cross. 
in the heat of that darkness and at the pit of the suffering that he experiences for our sake upon the cross as he descends into the deepest part of the deep well of our sin and its punishment and he goes to the bottom of that dark suffering where all the light of God's presence is drawn away from him and the father turns his face, he spontaneously cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can see in all these first four statements, in a sense, there is some sense of spontaneity in what the Lord Jesus says. It's not crafted. It's not developed for an effect. It is drawn out from him in this spontaneous fashion. And yet now when we turn to these other passages, these other statements, these last three statements, we should see that there is something that the Lord Jesus is revealing. They are less spontaneous and more calculated. They drive home to those around that the Lord Jesus has been in full control of all that is taking place. He is not a victim. He's a victor. He's not experiencing an accident of history. He is accomplishing a great work of salvation. His words are spoken in such a way that they leave a mark on all of those who have been mocking him at the foot of the cross. He's not on the cross as a pathetic figure. He's there as an empathetic figure. He's there because he's gone there for their sakes. He's there for your salvation and my salvation. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to take note of this controlled expression and the meaning of these last three words of Jesus Christ. Turn back to John chapter 19, verse 28. I want you to, in understanding the composure and the calculated nature of what the Lord Jesus is saying, I want you to see it framed for us in verse 28 of John 19. And we'll consider it a little bit more, but there's a word I want to underscore for you. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, in your Bible, you might just go and circle that word accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, it's true that this idea that the Lord just said, I thirst, is in part a fulfillment of scripture. Psalm 69 verse 21 says this, the psalmist writes, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Well, there's a pretty wonderful fulfillment of the declaration, I thirst. Jesus says, I thirst. In response to this declaration, I thirst, one of the soldiers takes sour wine that is at the foot of the cross. That would be just common wine that was drunk by the soldiers in those days. It was probably there for themselves. They dip a sponge in that wine, they put it on a hyssop stalk, lift it up to his lips, and he drinks from it. There is here a fulfillment of Scripture. But I think it's best to understand this phrase, that the Scripture should be fulfilled, doesn't introduce the statement, Jesus said, I thirst. It doesn't simply modify the statement, Jesus said, I thirst. Instead, it's most likely that this phrase, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, is modifying this statement, Jesus knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see that? And that's the point of emphasis. Actually, John uses this phrase, that the scripture might be fulfilled, at least on three other occasions in his gospel. And on each of those occasions, that statement is modifying what he has just said, what has gone before, not what comes after. Now, it's likely that it includes both. It includes the declaration, I thirst, but it also includes everything that's taking place up to this point on the cross. 
Everything that was accomplished at the cross, in other words, was a fulfillment of everything that the scripture was pointed to in regard to God's plan of redemption and God's purpose in sending his Messiah. And if you understand it that way, then you'll see that the last three declarations or statements that Jesus makes is in response to what he knows has been accomplished and that he knows scripture has been fulfilled in relation to his mission. In other words, you might read it this way as you consider these three verses. Jesus, knowing that everything had now been accomplished to fulfill what scriptures taught concerning his mission, said, and then we read these various statements, starting with the statement, I thirst. If you understand it that way, then what he says here is like a capstone of all that he's done. What he says here is a declaration to all those who have been questioning and mocking him before the cross, a declaration of his conquest and of his victory. And so he says first, and let's look at this first, I thirst, I thirst. Jesus has come out of a great work of suffering on the cross. God's just wrath and punishment against sin has been poured out upon him. The sinless Savior has become sin for us, and as such, he's entered into our judgment. And that judgment is, in essence, the removal of God's ministering presence from our lives. It's spiritual death. And the Bible says that all have sinned and that that sin separates us from a holy God and left to its course, the cause and ultimate movement of sin is an ever-deepening separation that will lead us to a final point of unending separation from God. And this alienation increasingly moves a person further and further away from the satisfying goodness of God. It will end with them being one day completely removed from any light and any refreshing from God's own goodness. And that's what hell is. It is the anguish of an unquenchable thirst. And while Jesus is on the cross, he has entered into the anguish of the sentence that we deserve. You remember in John chapter 4 when the Lord Jesus was meeting with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He asked her to draw water for him and she questioned the propriety of him asking her, a Samaritan woman, such a question. And then he said, if you knew who was who was talking to you, you would ask of me and I would give you water that you could drink so you would never thirst again. And she joked with him saying, well then give me that water so I never have to come to this well again. And he says to her that he is able to give her water that she may drink that would well up within her to everlasting life. This is what God's presence ultimately is. This is what heaven is. Heaven is the ever-satisfying outpouring of the life and the water and the refreshing of God's own goodness. Hell is just the opposite. And so in Luke chapter 16, the Lord Jesus tells the story of a rich man who dies and goes into Hades, or what we might in our minds conceptualize or understand to be hell, and there in this place of torment and suffering, the rich man cries across and calls out. He's in this place in which he cannot experience God's goodness. And he cries out for someone to come and to merely dip their finger in water and come and lay their wet finger upon his tongue for he says he's in great torment. That's what hell is. It's this place where his thirst and his suffering is bringing him to torment, and he's told at that time that his suffering can't be quenched. 
It remains forever. And in our passage, Jesus is just coming out of the fire of our own hell, having suffered as the Son of Man and the Son of God the everlasting weight of our sin's punishment and our great thirst. And as he comes out of the residue of that suffering, he calls out, I thirst, I thirst. The suffering he has endured is beyond our imagination. But the thirst is real. And the thirst is not only spiritual, but physical. I believe the father knew that the suffering of his son was over at that moment and that it was complete and that the father invited his son to the drink of life of his own felt and renewed presence and said to him in essence, drink, your work is accomplished. When the job is done, you realize how thirsty you are. You go and you drink in because you've completed your task and your job. And in a sense, we might see here that the Lord Jesus is drinking in the relief of all the labors that he's experienced and all the suffering that he's endured. What we could say is because Jesus took on the work that left him thirsty with the suffering for our sins, we may, as a result, receive the gift of everlasting water drink it in and never thirst again. Thanks for listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. I want to extend to you a welcome to join our worship every Sunday at 11 a.m. in the Old White Church at 1023 East State Street in the Warm Springs area of Boise. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links. Until the next time, may God bless you.